Well, good evening. Talking about evidence. You know what evidence is. When you go to court and you want to prove something, you have to have evidence that points in that direction. And we have plenty of it regarding God and His Word. And I thought tonight we'd just look at some more of it. I did the first part of this lesson a few weeks back, and you might have been hoping I'd forget to do the second. But nope, I'm, I remembered and it's here. We're, we're doing it tonight, so this is it. Uh, this is just a quick review of what we did last time. We talked about the unity of theme. The theme is redemption. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Third verse of the Bible, God is talking about redeeming man. When he talked about the seed of woman and how the seed of woman would bruise Satan's head while Satan would only bruise his heel. That's where the story of redemption begins. And then God calls Abraham in chapter 12 to bring into the world a nation from Abraham. That's the 12th chapter of Genesis now. And he does that throughout Genesis. And the rest of it is literally history, how God has worked his plan through the ages. Unity of style. We're talking about a book. It's 66 separate volumes, but they are condensed. There's a lot of stuff not in there. What's my favorite saying when we're studying? I need one more verse, but I don't get one more verse because it is condensed. Everything's there that we need. I really don't need another verse, although I'd like to have it. If men were writing this book all by themselves, it would have been much longer and much more detailed. It's not only condensed, but it's brief. We were talking this morning about just the account of Jesus' crucifixion, how he was at first scourged. How much does the Bible say? How much do the gospel writers say about the scourging? They usually report he was scourged. That's it. If men were writing that on their own, there would have been a lot more detail, a lot more elaboration. But you just don't have that in the Bible, and that's the way it is throughout. It's also simple. And I know, yes, you can point to places in the Bible that are complicated, and you can't really understand it without some deep study. But for the most part, it's simple. Are you confused about what's right and wrong as far as God's concerned? About basic morality? Are you confused about the plan of salvation? When you read through the Bible and you see what Jesus says and his apostles say about being saved, it's really pretty simple. It's, it's not a complicated, complex thing. Nobody's going to be left out of heaven because they couldn't understand what the book said. And then there's unity between the Old and New Testaments. You read the Old Testament and once somebody once said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And if you read your New Testament, starting in the Gospels, what you're going to find on almost every page is one or more quotations of the Old Covenant. They are united. It's the same story. You're just flowing from one end to the other. The Old was their schoolmaster to bring us to the New, to faith in Christ. And that's what we see there in regard to that unity between the Old and New Testaments. And then unity regarding the coming of Christ. So many passages of Scripture foretelling of Jesus' coming. And the New Testament is all about the fulfillment of those passages. Not only the coming of Christ, but the coming of the kingdom over which he reigns, and that is what the New Testament is all about, and all of that was foretold in the Old. So we've got all of that unity. Grammatical correctness, let's talk about that for a little bit tonight. Almost every time I provide a worksheet for my class, no matter how often I go over it, no matter who I give it to to proofread it, and it's just two sheets, there's always something wrong. And I look and I look and I look and I'm looking for those little squiggly lines. You know, the red ones and the blue ones. They're squiggly lines to help me find the stuff and I still can't find the stuff. But the grammatical correctness of the Bible is beyond outstanding. 
We're talking about a 66-volume uh, library, if you will, written by about 40 men over a period of about 1,500 years. And these guys were not professional writers. They were fishermen. Amos, remember what Amos was? Amos was a grower of sycamore fruit. I wonder how that tree got its name. Maybe they had a lot of it. And somebody said, I'm just sycamore of this stuff. So anyway... <laughs> That, that's what he did. He was a shepherd and a grower of sycamore. But he, he wrote Amos. And you go back and you read Amos. There's, it, it's grammatically correct. You don't find the things in there, the mistakes that you find in other works that you find in history. It's written in these three languages also, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And then it was translated into almost every language on the globe. We've got a document that's grammatically correct, written by about 40 men who were not professional writers. And those who copied made mistakes, but they didn't have mistakes to copy in the original documents. The farther back you go, the oldest manuscripts are those that are the most accurate regarding grammar. Impartiality. We got around in this country, in our culture, to writing about our heroes impartially about the mid-1800s, including their weaknesses as well as their strength. But the Bible always did that. Noah. What does the Bible say about Noah? He was righteous in the sight of God. And then after the flood, when that was over, he planted a vineyard, he drank of its wine, and he got stone cold drunk. That was Noah. Uh, cut him a little slack. He didn't have the writings of the New Testament to show him how bad it was to get drunk. So uh, I don't know where that goes, but, but he got drunk. <laughs> Abraham lied. He lied twice. And why did he lie? He lied because he was afraid. He was afraid somebody would kill him to take Sarah. And so he lied about who he was and just about got some people in bad trouble. And Abraham was God's friend. That's what the scripture says. Moses failed to acknowledge God. He was so upset. Uh, not sure if it was because of the Israelites or, or what it was. He was just not willing at that point when he did what he did with that rock. And God said, all right, now you can't come into the promised land. And it wasn't because he struck the rock. It was because he did not give him the glory in front of the people. That's what that was all. You can go back and read that account. But, but it's there to be read. That's the thing. It's there. Abraham's lives are there. Moses' failure to acknowledge God is there. David's adultery, not only his adultery, but his plot to cover it up. And how he implicated other members of his cabinet, so to speak, in trying to cover up that. And then finally had... The, the husband of the, the woman he committed adultery with murdered, trying to convince him at first that the child was his. How, how deceitful and deceptive. And yet when this was all over, David repented, so to speak, in sackcloth and ashes. And he was forgiven. What a great example for us. Not the example of the sin, but the example of the repentance and the forgiveness. In other words, I look at David's life and I see, yeah, there's, there's hope for me. And I have to wonder if that's not why all of these kinds of things are in there. Uh, Solomon's apostasy, Jonah's hatred of the people he was preaching to. And I've joked about maybe that's what we need. Instead of loving our neighbors, we need to hate them. And so we'll preach to them and convert 120,000 of them to the gospel. I'm, I'm not going to try that. but it's You read Jonah and you think that's what he did. He went into that town hating those people. And this is a guy God picked to be the prophet to send to them. And he preaches... What God told him to preach and 120,000 of them repented and they were saved. You read about the apostles and how petty they were. 
arguing back and forth about who was the greatest. Then Peter denied Christ, among other things. So many things that are in there that God said, we need to put this down because this is the truth. This is what happened. And I believe because he knew that we would read that and we would take heart that his people are not the superheroes. Wasn't that a great lesson this morning? God can use you even if you're like me. That's what I was thinking as I was listening to that lesson. Who are we? We're, we're just a bunch of nobodies. That's all anybody really is when we're compared to God. And yet God uses us all the time to do good and to bring him glory. And here's the funny thing about it. Talking about this in this morning's lesson. The, the weaker we are, the more glory it brings God in this world when people see us get turned around. Just makes sense. If it doesn't, ask me later and I'll explain that to you. Let's talk about some ethical teachings that are in the Bible. The, the high priority of, of ethics in the Bible is outstanding. You put God first, you put others as you put yourself. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do unto others how? As you would have them do unto you. Love others, how did he say? As you love yourself. So self-love is understood in that. It's implied, it's expected. Love yourself, but out of the love of yourself, love others after you put God first. No appeal to man's baser nature or physical desires. If I'm a Muslim and I die, what do I get? Well, what do they say I get? 72 virgins. Boy, you talk about a, an appeal for evangelism. Hey, guys, you want 72 virgins? Sign right here. Nothing like that. There's nothing in the Bible that says if you become a Christian, your life is going to be great. It's going to be so easy. You're going to be rich and famous and good looking and smart. No, it doesn't say that stuff, does it? There's never an appeal by God or Jesus or anybody to our baser natures of the things of this world. There's never any temptation to become a Christian or to follow God so that we might gain the things of this world. It's always much higher than that. Vice and virtue are static. It doesn't change. What's good is good now. And what's good now was good 2,000 years ago. What's right, what's moral. Love has always been God's plan. Caring about one another. That hasn't changed. Now somebody might point back and say, well, didn't God have the Israelites kill a bunch of people when they came into the land? Yes, but if you look at it in context, back in Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham, I'm going to bring your children into this land But I'm not going to do it yet. Why? The iniquity of the Amorites, and the Amorites, he used the Amorites to stand in for all the Canaanites. The iniquity of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. And when it is full, I'm sending your children into that land to punish them. And that's how God works. That was justice. That's all that was. Religion and morality are one. There are a lot of people in this world who practice religion, but they have no morality. And they think that by practicing religion, they'll be all right before God and all right in eternity. But God teaches us something different. You cannot be religious without morality. James says, pure and undefiled religion is this before the Father. What is it? To visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from this world. When Jesus talked about the judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25, 
I was thinking about that this morning too, interestingly enough. It's funny the things you'll think of as you're listening to a sermon. Jesus didn't say, all you who've converted thousands come into my kingdom. What did he say? If you fed somebody who's hungry, all you who've had your name put up in lights for the work of the kingdom. He didn't say that, did he? He said, all you who've given a drink to someone who was thirsty. You visited those who were sick. You went to those who were in prison. You clothed the naked. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25. Not the great, big, huge things we might think, but the small things, the everyday things, the things that all of us can do, everybody can do. Religion and morality are one, and God expects us to practice both. Evil is always opposed. It's never embraced. It's never encouraged. God's righteousness is our goal. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not just the kingdom, but the kingdom and the righteousness of God. The kingdom is, is part and parcel, or righteousness is part and parcel of, of the kingdom. And sacrificial love. Not just a a mental or emotional assent that you care about somebody, but doing something about it. That's what real love is, and that's what Jesus did. He did something to prove that he loved. Let's talk about accuracy with regard to geography. The Bible's not a geographical book, or a geography book, rather, but in all geographical references, you find accuracy. It's not bad for 66 separate books written over a 1,500-year period. In other words, if you just got... Uh, a newspaper and you started reading you would probably read some errors in there about locations and things like that if, if you got an ancient document written by some some man who was trying to do his best you would probably find some mistakes about when you go up or when you go down but when you read about going up in the bible it's always up when you read about going down when you read about something being on the west or on the right or on the left it's always true by the way this fellow nelson gluck i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right but he's uh, a renowned archaeologist, and this is what he said. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a Bible reference. That's a significant statement right there. Nothing's ever been found in archaeology that controverts what the Bible says. He also said scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. This is Nelson Gluck, renowned archaeologist of the last century, back in the 1900s, in other words. It does sound funny, doesn't it, to say that? Accuracy regarding science, medicine, and biology. Uh, here are just a few things I'm going to list that are in the Bible that are accurate uh, statements about the way things are. And the Bible is not a science book, yet all science-oriented references are accurate. Not bad considering all the misinformation put forth between 1500 B.C. and the first century A.D. That's when the Bible was written. Think about all the misconceptions, all the ignorance, all the things that people thought they knew that were wrong. In that 1,600-year period, and none of that found its way into the Bible. I could ask you now, speaking from the standpoint of science, should you eat eggs? I'm going to eat them. You do what you want. Should you eat butter? I'm going to eat it. You can do what you want. How about bacon? 
see, I'm getting amens all over the place now. <laughs> but the thing is, if, if you ask people of science about these things, they would say, well, I'm not sure it's got this, got that. Well, you don't find anything in the Bible that's questionable scientifically. It's all accurate. Isn't that interesting? Stars are innumerable. The reason I think this is important is because up until Galileo and the telescope, people thought there were as many stars as you could see. And whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere, you can see with your naked eye about 3,000 stars. And that's what people documented as thinking that was the number of the stars. But now we know there are 200,000 stars. No, wait a minute. That's 200,000 million. And I believe that's just in our galaxy. You check the number. I, I, can you fathom that large of a number? That's a lot of zeros. And so we read this in Genesis 15. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is God promising to Abraham what he was going to do with his descendants. By the way, how many children did Abraham have at that time? Zero. He did not have any. And he was 75. God didn't give him a son until he was 100. And how old was Sarah? 90. And that child... Born to an 80 year or a 90 year old father, a 100 year old father, I don't have enough numbers, and a 90 year old mother began the nation of Israel who became like the stars of the heavens. Another passage from Jeremiah As the heavenly lights cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who serve me. So it wasn't an offhand reference in Genesis only, but it was repeated by God's prophet. In Jeremiah. Water cycles. Amos chapter 9 verse 6. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens. And has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea. And pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Does what calls for the waters of the sea? And Amos wasn't seeing the water of the sea. Wash up. On the land. He was explaining. And I'm not even sure if Amos himself knew this or if he was just repeating what the Spirit was giving him to write. That God calls the waters of the sea. We know that. We understand that now. Evaporation. The waters of the sea get warm. They evaporate. They go up into the atmosphere. They form clouds. The clouds move over the land and they start dropping that moisture. That's what Amos was talking about. Who knew in those days except by the Spirit of God. Job chapter 26 and verse 7 says, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Have you read any of the ancient accounts about how people thought the earth was supported? There's a lot of ideas uh, about elephants standing on a huge turtle and the earth standing on the backs of those elephants. Or Atlas supporting the earth. And I know some of this is mythology. It's, It's stories made up. But people didn't know. And this is from the book of Job. He hangs the earth on nothing. Who would have known in Job's day that the earth hangs on nothing except by the mind of God revealing it to him? How about hygiene? Let's talk about hygiene. Everybody wants to talk about hygiene, don't we? You shall also have a place allocated outside the camp 
so that you may go out there to relieve yourself. That sounds like a good idea already, doesn't it? And you shall have a spade among your tools. And it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn and cover it up. That's a great idea. How many cultures don't have that or did not have that back in the day? But God says to the Israelites, this is what you're going to do. You're going to have a place. That's where everybody's going to go. And then you're going to cover it up. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to save you and to defeat your enemies before you, your camp must be holy. So he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. So what did the Israelites do? They had a place to go and they covered it up. Now this is interesting for a number of reasons, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Black Plague that went through Europe. The Black Death, the bubonic plague. Guess who was not greatly impacted by the bubonic plague? Jewish Communities were not greatly impacted by the bubonic plague. Why is that? Because this is what they practiced. They had a standard of hygiene. They kept things clean, whereas other Europeans did not keep things clean. And the filth and the disease just spread like wildfire amongst them. And a huge number in the population of Europe died as a result of the bubonic plague, but not among the Jews. And so the Jews were accused of practicing witchcraft. And persecution arose. You, you go t- take a look at the history of the bubonic plague and you'll find this to be true. But, but this is one of the reasons why it didn't impact them so much because God taught them to be clean. What about quarantine? Anybody ever heard the word quarantine? This is in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 13 from 13, 14, and 15. These three chapters talk about leprosy and diseases that have to be quarantined. And this is just a couple of passages from that. So you can get a a flavor, if you will. Uh, Maybe leprosy and flavor is not two words we need to use together. But at any rate, this is what it says. If the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and it does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair on it has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the person who has the infection for seven days. Then the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and if if in his eyes the infection has not changed, then the infection has not spread on the skin, and the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. And it goes on after that. But what you can see in this is very clear. God teaching the Israelites, if somebody's got this kind of an issue, you need to get them separated from everybody else. What do you know about leprosy? Besides it being a horrible disease... It's, it's one of the most infectious diseases there are, one of the most infectious maladies. And so God says, isolate people that have this kind of an issue until you see that it's, it's not going to be an issue. This is 1,500 years before the coming of Christ. Who else knew about this back in that day? I don't know that anyone did. But God was telling his people, quarantine's important. Psalm chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. You have him rule over the works of your hands, talking about what God does with man. You have put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. The paths of the sea I have underlined. Why? You ever heard of Matthew Mowry? Matthew Mowry was a sea captain. And and the story comes to us uh, a couple of different ways. But the, the bottom line is, he was hearing 
this psalm being read. And when he heard that phrase, the paths of the sea, being a sea captain, caught his attention. And he said, you know what? If the Bible says that there are paths in the sea, there must be paths in the sea. And he began to do research. And if you'll check it out, you can Google it yourself. Don't do it right now. Put your phones away. You can Google it and find out that Matthew Mowry was the founder of the science of oceanography. He did, in fact, discover, yes, there are paths in the sea. There are currents. And that's how uh, the, the ocean is navigated, especially back in the day when people were subject to currents and winds and things like that. So how do you find that out? Because God said there's paths in the sea. Who knew that except God? But that's in his book, a book, a psalm written a thousand years before the coming of Christ. Reproduction according to kind. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit according to their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And this idea of reproduction according to kind was repeated 10 times. You find it 10 times in the first chapter of Genesis. God's telling us about him creating all life on planet earth and how everything that he created that was alive reproduced how? After its kind, it's almost as if God could see some of these days, somebody's going to say, there's this thing called evolution. And evolution's what changed everything into something else. And we are only here because we used to be monkeys and now we're not monkeys anymore. And God says, I need to head that off at the pass. I'm going to put it in the first, first chapter of my book that everything reproduces after its kind. Now, scientifically, what do you find out happens today? Everything reproduces after its kind. You just look at your children and you'll say the same thing Debbie and I have said. Oh no, they're turning out just like us. <laughs> That's how we do it. We, we reproduce after our kind and we're not even trying. You want to have better kids than you are, but you don't. They're just like you. That's your punishment for being the way you are. No, but then you have grandkids, and they're different. (laughs) See, that's the grandparents laughing right there. Here's what you don't find in the Bible. Because you would think, you would think that a book written 1,900 years ago at the latest, and 2,500 years ago at the earliest, you would think there'd be some stuff included in there, That's included in other ancient documents. You go back and you read about Egyptian medicine. Well, there's all kinds of snake oils and things that they use in Egyptian medicine. But they would also say incantations and things. And and you know, you you light fire and you blow the smoke around. And you do all these crazy things that people who believe in uh, animism, whatever. But you don't find that in the Bible. It's just not there. You would think some of it would be there if men were writing it. Guiding themselves. But you don't find it. You don't find the scientific errors of the past. There's a bunch of them, but you don't read about any of them in the Bible. Nothing's included in the Bible regarding science that's not accurate, that's not true. A lot of things are recluded. We, we just looked at some of them that people generally did not know through scientific study, but God revealed it, had it written down in his book, and we know now those things were in fact the truth. You don't find the medical errors of the past. What's one of the reasons George Washington died? He got sick and what'd they do? They bled him. 
Let some of that blood out. He'll be better off. Oh, they should have read Leviticus. What's Leviticus say? Leviticus says the life is in the blood. Don't let the blood out so somebody will get better. And that's not that long ago either, George Washington. Superstitions. And superstitions used to be prolific. Do you walk under ladders? Do you change your, your route if a black path... path black, uh, black. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> if one of those things goes in front of you, you don't have to worry. It's such a relief not to have to worry about that. I, I would see guys in the military wearing necklaces. And some of those necklaces had images of, of saints on them. Hey, what's that? Oh, that's, that's so-and-so saint. Brings me good luck. Really? What does the Bible say about good luck? It doesn't say anything about luck. It doesn't say anything about wearing a necklace. It doesn't say anything about anything, no talisman, nothing. One of my friends in, uh, in high school when I was graduating gave me a little aluminum cross to put in my pocket. It, it said, put this cross in your pocket and every time you reach in your hand, in your pocket, and you feel that cross, you'll think about the Lord. And I did that. But I didn't carry it because of luck. I carried it because it's true. You reach in there, you feel that thing. Oh, yeah. Christ died for me. That's a little different than wearing something to bring you luck. But the Bible doesn't have any of this superstition. None of that stuff. You don't have to worry about the number 13. Uh, can you find a building in downtown Oklahoma City that has the 13th floor? Are there any down there? I didn't think to check about that, but a lot of buildings do not have a 13th floor. Really? Oh, well. Idolatry. You don't find idolatry in the Bible. This is a religion of choice for even civilized nations. Who are our most famous gods from? The two nations that we might consider most civilized and advanced, the Greeks and the Romans, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. What a mess. Why did those people, as smart as they were, believe in those kinds of idols? But God says, don't you make an image that you would worship? And it's interesting. We're not even taught to make an image of what we think God himself looks like. We're not even taught, make an image of the cross. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. I, I don't have any problem with that being up there. But Jesus didn't say, now I've died on a cross. I want you to make an image of the cross and carry it with you in your pocket or put it on the wall. Never said anything like that. There's no connection we have with anything that most other religions in the world have in the way of these kinds of talismans. The idolatrous idea of having something like that. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's all about him, his son, and his spirit living in us and being with us. It's not about carrying something in your pocket. Ethical errors. There's no racism in the Bible. There's no commercial slavery. Now, there's something called slavery, but if you read about it, you research, you find out, well, that's really a system of welfare. If you took somebody in as a slave, what do you have to do in seven years? You had to, to give them their freedom, but not only give them their freedom, you had to give them their freedom with a grub stake so they could start out free on their own. By the way, when they were with you for seven years, what were they learning? 
They were learning the skills, however you put them to work. They were learning to do that. Animal husbandry, farming, whatever it was. They were learning skills in your house and they were being fed and they were being protected. They weren't on their own, subject to whatever anybody else wanted to do with them. They became part of your family, part of your household. That's what biblical slavery was all about. So when somebody tells you, oh, the Bible supports slavery, be kind because they just don't know what they're talking about. Commercial slavery, (laughs) nothing, nothing at all, ever even close to that. Sexism, a lot of people point to the Bible, oh, the Bible puts women down. Uh, Really? The first chapter of the Bible says a woman was made how? In the image of Almighty God. Just like the man was made in the image of God, the woman is made in the image of God. He was made from dirt, by the way. What was she made from? She was made from him. She was the last thing God made. What did God say about the creation after he made the woman? Everything's very good. The only thing he said that was not good was not good for man to be alone. That boy needs help. And that has not changed. None of these ethical errors you'll find in the Bible. Abortion? I remember I mentioned, it's interesting, it comes up twice in one day. I talk about Latin class today when I was in high school. When one of the parts of Latin class in a high school class was learning about Roman culture because they are the people who use Latin. And I remember learning in Roman culture that if you had a baby and you didn't want it, you just wrapped it up, put it on your doorstep. If the dogs didn't get it, maybe somebody else would come by and want to raise a baby to be a servant in their house. Just set it outside. No law against that. That's perfectly acceptable in Roman culture. Roman culture, civilized Rome. That's what they did. And Rome is not unique. <laughs> regarding that. By the way, it's a great thing to know that we don't have any abortion going on in our country, right? Nothing like that in the Bible. It's not supported. It's not encouraged. Well, these are just things you won't find. There's other things. I'm sure there's a lot of things I overlooked, but I just wanted to bring at least these to you so that you can see that God has provided us a document whose vindicating truths are found within its own pages. All the evidence that we've looked at is organic in the sense, and I use this term because when you, when, you, when you're looking at vegetables in the grocery store and it says it's organic, what's that tell you? To me it says this is a plant that's as much the way God made it as it possibly can be. It is of the earth. It doesn't have any fake stuff. It's not made up stuff. It doesn't have any... Synthetics, it's real. And the evidence we've looked at comes right out of the book. You don't have to go anywhere else. You just read it out of the book and there it is. Boom. It's all right here. God's provided us a document that testifies to itself about the world around us and about the way things are so that we can understand this this is from God. No question about it. And if it's right about all these things... Is it right about the identity of Jesus? Is it right about the resurrection? Is it right that if Jesus is raised from the dead and promises us life through his sacrifice that he's gone to prepare a place for us? Is it right about that? If it's right about all this, I think it's going to be right about that. Is it right about the fact that he's coming back for us? If it's right about all this, I think it's right about that. Well, that's the lesson for tonight. Where are you?
Have you seen enough evidence to convince you to put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters? If you want to talk about becoming a Christian tonight or if you need your prayers of this congregation, Johnny's ready to lead us in what do we call it? The invitation song. We're inviting you to respond while we sing this song together. Johnny. Johnny.